Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you, and welcome to the City Club. Uh, my name is Jose R. Sanchez. I am the president and CEO of Humboldt Park Health and the Safety in a Hospital on the west side of our city. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, a great panel that we are going to have today to talk about physician burnout, and I uh, would like to thank those uh, um, members of the panel who will be introduced uh, later on. Uh, let me acknowledge uh, the presence of members of the Board of Directors of the City Club, uh, Dan Givens, and also CEO. Dan, you are around sitting over there. Um, uh, Omar D'Agostin, who is here. Omar is sitting right at that table. And um, I don't see any other board members around, so, okay. So let me also uh, acknowledge the presence of uh, Betty Lou and Paul Saltman uh, that are here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Commissioner Dennis Deer, uh, Dr. Michael Suck from the American Medical Association. Uh, James Madera from the American Medical Association is also present. Thank you for joining us. Uh, also, uh, we have uh, Commissioner Stanley Moore, who is present. Thank you. And I believe that Fritz K. Gee, uh, Commissioner, County Assessor, actually left, who was here. So... Let me welcome uh, everyone. Uh, today also we are joined by two uh, medical students from the University of Chicago uh, Prisker uh, Medical uh, School of Medicine, uh, Jonas Talandis and Kevin Wamala. Please stand up, that way we know who you are. The future doctors. A special thanks to our sponsors today, the American Medical Association, uh, Humboldt Park Health, and Cook County Health. Uh, thank you for your support. Uh, as you know, once we finish the conversation with the panel, uh, there will be questions. Uh, make sure that you submit your questions in advance so that we'll be able to, uh, to respond. And now it is my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce uh, someone that I have known since I arrived here 13 years ago. Uh, uh, was supposed to be for three years and I'm still standing in the city of Chicago. Uh, our uh, uh, Cook County Board President, um, uh, Tony uh, Prackwinkle, uh, who is the 35th President of the Cook County Board of Commissioners uh, an office she has held since 2010, and the first black woman to be elected to the office. Tony, thank you. Uh, so, uh, uh, President Preckwinkle oversees one of the nation's largest public health and hospital systems, uh, promoting equity, specifically racial equity, 
has been a central principle of President Preckwinkle's uh, leadership. Uh, with that, uh, please welcome uh, our county president, Tony Preckwinkle. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm always grateful to be invited to the City Club to touch on issues that are important to our residents here in Cook County. This is especially true today as we discuss efforts to help physicians and the work of building a better, more inclusive health system. I want to recognize and thank a number of people who are with us here today, beginning with our panelists, Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld, President of the American Medical Association, I have to note that the American Medical Association committed to a three-year investment of $3 million to Chicago's West Side United Collaborative to improve health outcomes while advancing the organization's strategic commitment to dismantling structural inequities. Now, this is a collaboration that includes our Healthcare providers on the near west side, not just Stroger Hospital, but Rush and Jesse Brown, which is the Veterans Administration, and UI Health, University of Illinois Health. So um, we're very grateful for that commitment. We're also grateful for the presence today of Dr. Mary Ann Green, Vice Dean of Education at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. And last but not least, Israel Rocha who's CEO of Cook County Health. And I always embarrass him by saying there have been half a dozen leaders of our healthcare system since I've had this job, and um, only two of them had my confidence, one of whom, thank God, is Israel. So I am very, I am very grateful to him. They will be discussing the state of health care today the ongoing healthcare workforce shortage, why it matters for patients, and how we can respond. I'd be remiss if I didn't also acknowledge our two commissioners, Dennis Deer, who's chair of our health committee and a board member of Cook County Health, and Stan Moore, Commissioner Moore as well, who's always had a, a great interest in healthcare. According to new data published in the last week by the Association of American Medical Colleges, the United States faces a, an estimated shortcoming of about 38,000 to 124,000, that's a kind of wide range, um, of physicians by 2034 in both primary and specialty care. And as a baby boomer myself, this is a real challenge. Um, our country is facing an increasing shortage of physicians and nurses, partly because of retirements, and just the general aging of the population makes that even more challenging. <laughs> A September 2021 report from the Kaiser Family Foundation noted that 83.7, let's just say 84 million people in the United States, live in a designated primary health care professional shortage area. That's kind of a mouthful. Um, it just means they don't have good access to primary and specialty care, right? Um, that is, given that our population is a little more than 300 million, that's pretty significant. I'm proud of what Cook County government does every day to meet the needs of our residents regarding health care, um, and in particular by trying to address some of the barriers that people face getting into medical school or getting into the health care professions. 
In collaboration with Cook County Health and Hospital Foundation, we established the Providence Scholarship Fund. And this year we awarded 30 scholarships to support students entering medical fields who are from and want to care for underserved communities. Um, thank you. We awarded we awarded a million dollars in scholarships. When this scholarship fund was created, we set our sights on creating a more equitable health care system that provides high quality, culturally competent care for everybody. And you should know that less than 6% of the doctors in this country are African American and fewer than 7% are from the Latino community. Diversity is, in medicine is good for our workforce and it's critical for our patients. We must ensure that our health care workforce is reflective of the communities we serve, and I'm proud that Cook County is taking the initiative and in making that happen. We all know that COVID-19 has forever altered our health care system in this country. It exposed cracks in our nationwide health care delivery system and amplified entrenched inequities in access to care and, and underscored the intersection of health and commerce. We can't have a healthy and robust economy without a mentally and physically healthy workforce. So I always say, you know, investments in healthcare are economic investments and not just investments in healthcare. Preventing physician burnout and, and bolstering our healthcare workforce are critical to ensuring that we can function effectively as a society. Um, you know, I, I happen to believe in universal healthcare. Um, unfortunately, our country isn't there yet. We hope and pray. Um, but we, as a public health institution, have to do the best that we can uh, in the absence of universal health care to meet the needs of our residents. The health care ecosystem faces a lot of challenges in the year, years to come, and I look forward to the upcoming discussion to hear more about what we can do to collectively address our national and local physician shortages and support future and practicing doctors to uphold the health of our residents. With that, I'll turn it back to Dan. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Madam President, for that introduction to such an important topic um, and, and for your continued support uh, and commitment to the City Club of Chicago. Uh, thanks, Jose Sanchez, also for your opening remarks and uh, an incredible contributions to the City Club. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, it's great to have all these in incredible people here today. Some brain power that I can't wait to uh, to hear from. So what I'm going to do is take a seat and ask each of you to just spend a couple of minutes talking about, rather than me trying to sum up an introduction, uh, if you don't mind, take two minutes and, and talk a little bit about yourself, and, and, uh, and then we'll lead into some questions that we have um, prepared and then some that have been submitted already and then some from the audience today that are also being submitted. If you haven't, please get your question to me. The sooner the better. Just uh, Amanda's over here and B's around so that I can uh, factor them into the, to the conversation. But uh, let's, let's move right along. Israel Rocha, you want to get us started and uh, say hello and, and welcome, uh, welcome to the City Club. 
Sure. Uh, so first I want to say uh, good good afternoon to everyone. And I'm uh, Isra Roach. I'm the CEO for Cook County Health. I've been uh, an administrator probably for about 20 years in healthcare in different roles, uh, different parts of the country, in Texas, New York, now in Chicago. I'm grateful to be here to talk about uh, how we're going to be able to develop a more robust workforce to make sure that we're able to provide uh, the healthcare needs of our patients. I want to start by also thanking President Perkwinkle and the entire Board of Commissioners, Commissioner Moore, Commissioner Deer, for their excellent work in continuing to advocate for a robust system of health that is really here to ensure that Chicago has universal access and that no one gets left behind, that everyone is able to access health care regardless of the ability to pay. Uh, it's a mission that has been part of Cook County Health for almost 200 years, one that we're proud of and one that we want to continue well past our tenure at the institution. Uh, I want to thank City Club and Dan Gibbons as well as Dr. Aaronville and Dr. Green who are here with us to talk about this important conversation and really excited to get the conversation going. So rather than than reviewing a little bit more. You all hopefully know a little bit about Cook County Health and know about myself, but we can get to know each other through the conversation. So with that, I'm, I'm very happy to be here and look forward to, the, to today's panel. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Green. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. I, I am also very grateful to be invited to speak with you and look forward to your questions. Um, I am the Vice Dean for Education at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine just down in Streeterville. I've been at Northwestern since 1997, but my primary love beyond for medical students is, uh, in, is primary care. I'm a general internist trained in Boston and was in private practice in primary care until 1997 when I moved to Chicago and I joined a more academic medical practice and slowly moved up the ladder to uh, now my position as Vice Dean for Education. I'm still practicing. I'm very anxious about retiring in a few years and thinking about what's going to happen with my patients who will not be able to find primary care doctors any longer, so that makes me a bit nervous. Um, but on my oversight in my administrative job is on all of medical education at Northwestern, which is the MD program, the physician assistant program, the PT program, the prosthetics orthotics program, all of our residents and fellows, which is graduate medical education and trainees, and then continuing medical education. So big portfolio. Hopefully I can, I can share some insights. Great. Um... Uh, well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Israel. Thank you, Marianne, for, for being here. My name is Jesse Ehrenfeld, and I'm the president of the American Medical Association, and it is a pleasure to be here. Um, I always think it's sometimes a miracle when I'm on stage because I've got a, f a seven-month-old and a four-year-old at home, and the fact that I'm dressed in the right spot with the right tie um, sometimes um, is a daunting task. Um, you know, uh, burnout physician shortages, um, a lot of attention paid to these critical issues. We all understand the pressure that's been put on healthcare writ large, but including specifically the physician community, understanding the factors that are leading to burnout, that are leading to physicians deciding to give up practice is critical. Um, this is why the AMA arrived at our recovery plan for America's physicians, which we launched a year ago. The bottom line is this is about patient care. It's about making sure that patients are able to see a physician when they, when they need one. And I'll tell you, you know, my parents are both in their 70s, um, and their primary care doctor, um, who is um, not as senior as you might expect, um, just gave up the practice. Um, it was too much. Uh, reimbursements were too low. 
it was too daunting to continue to keep the lights on. And so they struggled for about six months to find a new primary care doctor, a story that is not foreign to many of you. Um, all of the challenges when things get lost in translation, when you transfer complex care to another practice and get things reestablished, um, led to complications that were preventable. Um, and that happens every day in every county in America. Um, as was mentioned by the county board president, there are 83 million Americans who live in an area where there is not access to primary care. And that is only going to get worse. Uh, and if we are not thoughtful uh, and aggressive in trying to reverse the tide of people um, choosing not to enter the profession, choosing to leave the practice early, not being thoughtful about workforce expansion, uh, we are going to have a crisis on our hands. Uh, and so that's why we are so delighted to be here to talk about uh, this important issue. Great. Well, let's get right into it. The crisis, the crisis uh, at hand is, is there will be uh, a shortage. So... Right back to you, uh, from your perspective, wearing your, your AMA hat, um, how, can, how can the American Medical Association be sure that there are enough physicians to meet the needs of the country over the next decade? Now, both short-term and, and long-term, if you don't mind. And as we do this, please, anyone, feel free to step in along the way. I'll, I'll try to direct questions to different folks at different times. Um, that's a great starting point. There are a lot of things that we know we can do and that we should be doing uh, immediately. Um, so for starters, we've got our AMA recovery plan that is trying to address the most urgent pressures on the practice of medicine, common challenges that every physician is facing today. Uh, things that are driving burnout, that are sucking the joy out of the practice of medicine and leading people to want to leave. Um, you know, two out of five physicians in our survey data tell us that they're planning to leave the practice in the next five years. Um, and you think about the already challenges we have today. If people follow through with that, um, it just makes things e even worse. Um, so we need to make sure that the administrative hassles, challenges around prior authorization, when you have to fight with an insurance company for things that your patients need, you know that they need, your patient knows that they need, um, but is denied and denied, and, and you have to play these games with insurance companies to get covered. I, I, I'm an anesthesiologist. I see patients most weeks still, um, which is actually the easiest part of my job because I know what to do. <laughs> I always ask my patients, and I'm an anesthesiologist, so by the time they're there, like, they're having surgery uh, for the most part. Um, I always ask them, I say, you know, like, how long did it take you to get your surgery scheduled? And I, I do mostly neurosurgical cases, so brain tumors, spine surgeries, that kind of thing. And, um, and usually it's well, uh, it goes something like this. It took me a month to get the surgery scheduled and three months to get approved by my insurance company. Um, and that just happens every day in America and is very frustrating for patients and doctors. Um, we rely on international medical graduates. Um, we have a huge uh, need for international graduates to service healthcare across the country. One quarter of practicing physicians in the U.S. today were trained outside of the country. Um, and we continue to struggle uh, to expand uh, access to bring physicians from other countries here. Um, there are things like the Conrad 30 program uh, that we know would allow us to expand um, those opportunities to, to meet these needs. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, like many things, that has gotten politicized. Um, that has become a challenge tied up in uh, many other issues related to immigration uh, in, in Washington, unfortunately. Um, hasn't gotten where we need to be, uh, but there's a lot of opportunity there. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, medical school debt. Um, we got a huge blow, all of us in this room, this past summer when the Supreme Court ended affirmative action. Uh, 
And that is going to only make health equity problems worse because it will reduce diversity across all of higher education and in medical school, and that will lead to worse outcomes for already underserved, marginalized patients. The AMA stood up uh, with you know, our work, amicus briefs, all those kinds of things to support. Um, unfortunately, uh, the cases didn't go the right way. Um, but we've got to make sure that medical school is not a daunting profession uh, for students um, who come from diverse backgrounds. And unfortunately, the crushing debt that most medical students graduate with, $200,000 is the average debt that somebody walks out of a four-year program with, um, doesn't turn people away. Um, I know when I was thinking about applying to schools and you're making those decisions, a lot of people say, maybe this isn't for me. You know, where am I going to get that kind of money? My family doesn't have those resources. And so uh, we know that there are things that we can do to make it easier, those pathways to entry, to make the physician uh, workforce more robust, uh, more attractive, particularly for uh, diverse communities. Thank you. And, and sticking with that, uh, the topic, especially the Supreme Court decision, um, I thought, Dr. Green, if you, if you don't mind, I know Northwestern has been very committed to hiring diverse or not hiring, but, but in, enrolling diverse candidates. Uh, you're, you're on the ground with these future doctors. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing? What is that, what is that Supreme Court ruling uh, doing to, to your enrollment and your, uh, your view of this, this future cla- these future classes? Well, the, um, the ruling just happened, and so we don't know, quite know yet what it's going to do to enrollment, although we do have some statistics from states like Florida and California that had affirmative action banned and their enrollment in medical school went down with one statistic I saw around 17%. So I don't think any of us are optimistic that this is going to be an easy challenge to overcome. Our abilities to recruit those students, um, which I absolutely agree with Jesse, are critical to actually resulting in health equity for all the reasons that he just mentioned. Um, are going to be sort of enhancing pathway programs, which Northwestern is very focused on, pipeline programs, creating learning environments that makes our underrepresented students want to apply to Northwestern, making sure that there is funding available for uh, the debt, and, and, and that has a, a number of tactics that, that can be applied so that that's not a barrier to students. But there are so many barriers already to students of color that are pursuing higher education that having one more like this ruling is, um, I think, just also going to be a psychological detriment. I would not be surprised if we lose the gains we've made in the last few years in terms of the number of applicants to medical school from these types of from these students. And are you seeing? I mean, we're talking about phys- physician short or uh, physician burnout. Are you seeing that in students currently? The, what's that that um, that burnout factor? Is that coming? Are you seeing that ahead of? them actually becoming doctors. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely higher rates of burnout among medical students and health profession students as compared to similar age groups of that, um, you know, socially or college undergrad students. There's definitely a higher rate. One statistic said around 50% of medical students will experience one piece of burnout throughout their four years of training. Um, we at Northwestern have seen our numbers be fairly 
uh, stable in burnout. Um, and I think it's important to look at what burnout does in this topic that we're looking at, which is physician shortage. We do not see significant attrition rates in medical student education or other health professions education, and we don't see attrition rates in training either. I don't think somebody, by the time they're, you know, fourth or fifth year of their residency training is going to give up then <laughs> before their salary goes up to pay off some of that debt. So the, I don't think the burnout is affecting attrition in the same way it is among practicing physicians. I think, however, it is really a, um, foundational for us to start finding solutions to some of that burnout issue. And, and some of the things, and there's two students at our table there that I'd, I'd welcome to, to share their comments too, probably closer to the ground than I am. But some of the tactics that, that schools and programs are taking are really focused on inclusive learning environments, creating community, making sure everybody feels welcome in that space. Um, the debt reduction is a key element also to address the burnout issue. There's no question about that. Um, and I think in GME, for example, we have data, and GME by that I mean residents and fellows, because there's definitely burnout in that population too. There's, there's an interesting study that showed that the amount of time that a resident is in front of a patient is surprisingly low. It's, and Jesse, you may know the number, it's like an hour out of the day or something like that, two hours. So U.S. physicians spend 15% of their time in front of a patient. Right, and the residency time is like 17%. The rest of the time, especially in cognitive specialties, is spent in front of a computer. And I think that... That reduces the meaning for the people going into medicine, and and that is one of the key um, uh, 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 weapons against burnout in terms of being able to find the meaning and the joy in what you do. It's not in front of computers. And we we also have the challenge of the stigma when people are burnout and they need help. And, you know, if anybody wants to raise their hand and talk about their psychiatrist, you know, right, nobody's doing that. And um, we, we, we have systems that have made it hard for students and for physicians to get help when they need it. Um, we uh, have a long history in an unfortunate way. When I apply for a medical license through the state or when I apply for credentialing at my hospital, um, that I have to answer these questions about whether I've ever seen a psychiatrist or had uh, behavioral health counseling. Uh, stigmatizing questions that make people not want to get help when they need it because they know that they're going to have to answer these questions, and so it becomes a barrier. Now, fortunately, those things have started to change, and we've done a lot of work at the at the state and federal level with the Lorna Green Healthcare Heroes Provider Act uh, to make sure that we start to change some of that language and those approaches, and certainly, actually, there's been some really good work here in, in the state and in the city, um, but we have a lot more work to do. Yeah, well, absolutely. I would say that, for, if I can just add, that for our students currently, this generation, the stigma is significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. The number of students who are willing to to share their own mental health experiences with their classmates and others, and the number of students and trainees who are pursuing mental health care is going up Great. Um, fairly rapidly. We're seeing it here at the City Club. Sure. You, were, you were here. We had um, mm-hmm. uh, this U.S. Surgeon General that was here talking to teens about mental, their mental health, yeah. and now we've weaved it into every other conversation. You were there for that conversation. How, how are you... How are you seeing that effect, especially in Cook County? I mean, it's so much of your work is mental health, but, but also this shortage 
tie that up a little bit for, for what you're seeing from the county perspective. Sure. So actually, we'll review a few things real quickly. One, um, at Cook County Health, we are doing something different, and we have a wellness office. We're recruiting for a chief wellness officer who is a psychiatrist focused on just creating wellness for our team, for our nurses, for our physicians, creating an overall wellness program to make sure that people have a safe space to go, and then looking at redesigning the entire work environment. I think that the reason burnout happens is a few things, that it's come to light probably now more than ever, is that one, overnight during COVID, and COVID had, we had burnout before, but COVID accelerated it. We saw it with our nurses. We saw earlier retirements. We used to see people work well past their retirement year, and we're seeing that less. We're seeing people just get to retirement and leave the profession. And, and part of that is that overnight, Healthcare used to be something that you helped people heal. You could see and help your patients. You had tools and tactics to be able to do it. Um, and while, yes, we always knew there was some exposure to yourself, it wasn't a, a career where you could be almost immediately harmed. You could immediately lose your life. And not only that, you could gain something that would then cause you to lose the life of your loved ones. And that's a very significant change. So you saw someone go from a beneficial healthcare, benevolent service to a, a real first-line service where you're putting your life at risk every day. And that creates other things that start to weigh on you because that creates stress, it creates concern. And so we're working to help people adjust to that reality and, and understanding how we can help be there for our providers and help that. And yes, administrative burdens are part of it, but I would say this. I, th I think we have to be honest as a country and say that we have failed probably for the last decade. We saw this coming. We knew that it was coming. We knew every year the percentage of people who were over the age of 50 comprising our, our medical core, that's nurses, doctors, dentists, everything, just kept growing, and we did nothing. We didn't increase our number of residencies on par. We didn't increase the number of medicals was necessary. We didn't really do anything to really augment the STEM careers at the high school level because it takes a while to get a doctor or even a nurse. You have to go back all the way to high school and they have to learn math and science and they build upon each other to college and you have to learn chemistry and biology and then to medical school. So you can't be sitting and saying, oh, we're going to create a doctor tomorrow. It's a 20-year process to get the number of people that we need and we have not done it. And we've had all the alarm bells and all the signages. And during COVID, we saw that people had these great ideas to open up. We operated one, a U.S. center, US, uh, a center that was opened up to be able to create and care for all these patients. One thing was a problem. You didn't have doctors. We could create all these beds and all these things. There wasn't doctors. And people kept talking about where are we going to move these patients. You didn't have pulmonologists. You didn't have intensivists. You didn't have the specialists. And so then we had to go right back to the hospitals and treat people in different ways and come up with new technologies. The problem is that we need our moonshot moment. If we go back to 1918 when we had a similar event, we at Cook County Health still have a relic of it. We have an empty building that we're <laughs> going to get ready to vacate, but we have this large nursing dormitory. And that was, if you go to especially the older hospitals in our country, everybody has one. And that was because when there was a recognition that there wasn't enough healthcare providers, the country made a massive investment and created nursing schools at almost every single hospital. And overnight, they increased the nursing corps by almost 200%. And it kept going for the next 20 years. We need something similar. Working around the periphery is failed and we are not helping to do anything new. Science says it's okay to fail, but you have to change your process. Repeating it and expecting a different result is not going to get us where we need to get. Yeah. On that point, I, just, I have to say that um, burnout, 
manifests in individuals, mm-hmm. but it originates in systems. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the AMA has put a lot of energy, a lot of effort into creating toolkits for health systems to try to re-engineer processes to get at the system root cause of the drivers of exhaustion and burnout. And we have something called the Joy in Medicine Recognition Program. I know there are a couple of organizations represented here that have been recognized for that system-level work, and we're hoping to continue to see that scale and grow in the future. If I could add, too, there has been a rise Mm -hmm. in medical schools in the last uh, 15 years or so when this was first kind of discussed. And there certainly is a rise in physician assistant programs across the country and DO programs across Mm -hmm. the country. So I I do think it's important for us to not just focus on the physician. I think it is critical, especially as we think about primary care, just because we are increasing the number of medical students and trainees, and I would agree that the Congress is very slow. It's certainly not 200 thousand or million dollars that you talked about with the nursing programs. But um, just because we're increasing the number of graduates from these programs, that we still have students at a declining interest in primary care. Mm-hmm. So that remains a critical problem. And, and you know, we can talk mm-hmm. at some point about why I think that is. Um, but I also think about um, sort of the importance for us to be training our medical students and our residents in really true team-based care and utilizing our PAs, our nurse practitioners, our social workers, our community health workers in a way that we can expand healthcare mm-hmm. delivery. We haven't touched on technology yet. That's the other area that I think may make these dire predictions. Maybe I'm Pollyanna and optimistic, <laughs> but I, I do think that there is an important framing for us to say that healthcare may not be delivered in the exact same way that it has been for the last, you know, 100 years or certainly mm-hmm. since I started my training for sure. We have to be broader as we think about it. And and I would add one thing I think that is really important. When we look at medicine and why primary care is so difficult and and why we're having so much challenge. And at Cook County Health, we actually operate the largest single-site internal medicine residency program in the country. We have over 200 residents for internal medicine, and so we are the largest single-site of any health system in the United States. And so we know more than most that they are going to different locations. They're going into specialty care. But part of it is because they want to practice, because in specialty care, you still get to see your patients. You get to operate. You get to actually put in replacements. You get to see what's happening. Internal medicine and primary care, because we haven't changed the system, now has become a little bit bureaucratic and you're managing large patient populations. But the challenge with that is, again, and and really sticking to the area that we have to think big and change the process. We have not changed the way people get medical access in our country or the world in probably over 200 years. It starts with you having to go see a doctor. And that starts everything. And that means there's no availability. When we talk about practicing to top of the license, using nurses, providers, there's no reason why you couldn't get a blood test so that you don't have to go two visits to a doctor. There's no reason why you couldn't use technology to do screening, to diagnose the most critical things that are causing premature mortality. We talk about Chicago having two cities, a city in the south side that dies in the 60s and a city in in Streeterville that dies in the 80s. And part of that is because it's medical access. It takes forever. So we have a problem that people aren't getting to doctors. If you have Medicaid or, or lower payers, it's even harder because there's fewer physicians that are taking those plans. And as you have lower primary care doctors, they start everything. So I do agree, primary care is a big issue. It's where you start the whole process. So you have this wonderful 
army of things to help you be healthy, but there's only one doorway in, and it has to start with a primary care doctor willing to see you that then refers you to a specialist and then takes you other places. And while we have kept adding to the army, which we need, and the technology and innovations, and now we can swab your cheek and tell you probably what you're going to most likely have an issue with in your, in your life, and we can help address it. But if you don't ever get to have your cheek swabbed, then it doesn't really matter. And the problem where we're failing in our country is that we haven't changed primary care significantly to let doctors be doctors, to practice the highest form of medicine, to clear up some of the bureaucracy, and to clear the way that we can get the most at-risk patients into the system. Because right now, everything else keeps advancing, but the doorway stays the same. And you just keep having more and more people trying to go in through one doorway. It's like a brand new restaurant that opened. Everyone's trying to get in and get the sandwich begin no one can get there and that's really what's happening and if we don't change it so that you can get medicine faster that we can diagnose you that we can have information that we can do impanelment technology is a wonderful thing but if i can't get to you and i can't monitor you and i don't have a way to get you in the system you will continue to be outside of the system and then you'll continue to have providers be even more frustrated because they're seeing patients come to them late they're seeing patients come with disease that could have been prevented they're seeing pain and then they're stuck filing paperwork and managing patients and not really doing the thing that they signed up to do. And so I think the biggest solution we can do is to rethink completely anew and to look at how can we get patients faster. What can we do to get before the doctor so when the doctor sees you, it is a meaningful interaction with all the data that they need to make the decisions for you to have the best life that you can have. I do think technology um, has to play a critical role as we address the physician workforce shortage, but also um, redesign our systems. Um, We could spend an hour talking about AI. um, And what the AMA, we we sort of lose this battle, but we we still fight it. Um, We like to talk about AI as augmented intelligence, not artificial intelligence, because we see these tools as boosting the capabilities of our teams, not replacing them. And I'll, I'll give these examples. Anybody here have diabetes? couple people. So um, if you have diabetes, you should be getting a diabetic retinopathy eye exam every year. Um, that means that you need to go to the eye doctor. Well, it turns out that um, there are millions and millions and millions of people in America with diabetes. Uh, we don't have enough ophthalmologists to do those exams. We never will. Um, but there's a technology solution. Um, there's a really nice FDA-approved autonomous device that uh, can, you can put somebody in front of it. You can put it in a grocery store. You can put it in a primary care office. You can put it uh, in a bank. Um, and with a high school operator trained person, you can actually detect diabetic retinopathy uh, with such precision that the company that uh, created this out of the University of Iowa they actually hold liability insurance on the device. So think about what that does. It means that now millions and millions of exams, theoretically, that are normal, don't need to be done by an ophthalmologist. They only need to see the people that actually have the disease who then require treatment. So it allows us to completely shift the paradigm around how we deliver that really, really important service that prevents blindness. Um, So we've got to think about how we embrace technologies, whether it's telehealth or AI or digital medicine, to amplify the capacity of our our workforce. And I think there's a really exciting opportunity to to do that now. And if I can add to bring joy and meaning back, because I'm Mm -hmm. about to be in a pilot where um, the generative AI in my office is listening to my conversation with a patient, (laughs) and I've seen this, and it's actually then translating it into my note, into the written note in a format that we're all trained in medical school with a chief complaint, a history of present illness. Even if I start talking about the dog and, you know, did did they get a new puppy or that type of thing, this this machine or the, the learning can actually pull that out 
out of the node and just give us the actual medical information needed for the encounter. The goal here is that there's more time for me looking at the patient and not typing and putting in orders. The most important piece for me is when I can just say out loud, please order CAT scan of chest, link it to this diagnosis, please write a referral for such and such. That's not far away. And I think that's actually going to be part of what brings some of that joy back into primary care. And our students and trainees will see that and hopefully be drawn more to the field. I think we cannot forget about the debt issue, though, and the difference in the salaries between a primary care physician in this country and the specialist salaries. And that is based on reimbursement codes that Congress sets, and Jesse knows much more about than I do. Um, but, but until that is addressed, it, that's, no matter how sexy it is to go into primary care with talking out loud and a computer making these kinds of decisions for me, um, our students will not choose that. I, I will say we, we need to make sure that the technologies that we have are an asset, not a burden. And unfortunately, a lot of technologies like the electronic health record uh, were the opposite. They actually were a pain point. Um, and that was often because physicians were not at the center of the design process. And so the AMA has tried to really push on that. Uh, we have a really wonderful partner with, partnership with Matter just down the street over at the Merchandise Mart uh, to try to make sure that you know, physician understandings of these problems and workflows is at the center of the design of technologies. And so we have a, a lot of our innovation ecosystem that's really centered around trying to bring those products into the marketplace to ultimately make these things better. And the only thing I would add as well to technology, I would say it's, it's, the, it's the providers and the patients. Yeah. You know, patients are actually very astute. And when we actually sat down and looked at why people were coming to the emergency department, people who uh, really were, were okay, they just needed to come in and they were coming for routine issues. And we tried to get them an appointment with a primary care provider and they would refuse. And we asked why. And they actually said, because that's crazy. And we wanted more information. And they said, for me to go, I have a heart condition. I'm going to have to go see the doctor six times. I don't have paid leave, so I'm never going to get what I need. I come to the emergency department, and I get the medicine I need in one night and one visit. I can come at night. I don't miss work, and I'm able to go back to work the next day with my prescription. That is what we need to listen to the patients to be able to help them get the process that they need because we've all sat there when you go in to go to a doctor for the first time and then you whether it's a loved one or yourself you have to go to the primary care doctor then they send you to test and they send you to imaging then they send you back to the primary care doctor then they send you a specialist sometimes they'll send for more additional tests then you see pas and finally you get the doctor and maybe you get the surgical intervention and that's sometimes we've actually timed it months later sometimes six seven eight months for people who don't have time or single parents single families have challenges have income burdens, that not showing up to work makes a difference between keeping your house. Those are real decisions. So technology needs to be advanced to do the diagnostics and amazing work that you're talking, but it also can be simple and be able to provide 24-axis virtual care so that you can talk to nurses, doctors, get your prescriptions, get early testing, and get ahead of the game a little bit faster so that when you have to go see the doctor, it can be a meaningful encounter. So I think we need to work in on both ends, for the provider and for the patients, simple and complex to make sure that we're finding new ways to bring healthcare to patients. There, there are important policy decisions that are driving those access issues. Mm -hmm. And so the telehealth flexibilities that we got during COVID Absolutely. that are now extended through 2024 are slated to go away 
for our federal programs. So you know, we're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen because it's been a really, really critical, important tool for so many communities to have the ability to see somebody you know, over the phone, on video chat, to have your appointment. Um, and we don't want that to slide away because a policy decision uh, at the congressional level. Exactly. I wish you all could come every day. You're making my job really easy. <laughs> We, we've, we've got about 30 questions here, and you've hit so many of them in just the past few minutes at talking amongst yourselves, so please keep that up. Um, what, I'll, what I'll prompt uh, next with is, is a question from uh, Raymond Pollock that, uh, that I think maybe, Dr. Green, if you could, could weigh in on. Um, female MDs, the me- median lifetime in practice is, uh, I think, plus or minus nine years. How do we keep them in the workforce? Uh, and perhaps... There's another question, maybe we can tackle this in, in one, is uh, it, similar to Latinx, uh, you know, in, in the shortage of, you know, it sounds like there are only 7%, uh, less than 7% of Latinx, Latinx physicians, uh, as, as President Preckwinkle noted. Um, how can we expand the field for Latinx professionals? Um, Rosanna asked that from, from Humboldt Park Health. You're seeing the stuff, on the, you're seeing the incoming, you know, students in, in those uh, that are going to be the future, how can we expand that and how can we l- lengthen the lives of those careers? Well, I hadn't heard that statistic that female physicians are only nine years. Uh, I find that, have, are you familiar with that? I'm not sure. I think that's I'm okay. basing it on a handwritten question. Yeah, that's so. okay. Is it a doctor's um, handwriting? <laughs> it is. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think, and, and that's, you know, one of the, the things that we're seeing is there are more women applying to medical school. They're actually now a higher percentage than men in, med- in, in MD, and that's certainly true in our nurse practitioner and physician assistance programs, no question about that. Medicine has not been um, very good at uh, creating a, a, a workforce where women can actually have children and raise families and work part-time, job sharing, all of that. I don't think that's unique to medicine. I have colleagues in other specialties. I think we need to move towards an environment where that is recognized. And I can tell you that the generation that I'm seeing now in training is not going to tolerate the kinds of things we tolerated when we were in training. They're much more focused on when I'm off, I'm off, and I want to get home in time to see my kids, and and all really, really important things. We have to make sure that patients aren't left in that scenario, but but I do think we're moving towards a a healthier, balanced approach to work for our female physicians. We just have a lot of... uh, a lot of generations to maybe have to retire first is what I would say before we can really get that done. <laughs> you know what, I can add a little bit on, on what we're seeing. I think, and technology has a part to be able to help in this as you're redoing the process. There's been a change a little bit where across all our, our practices, not just physicians, nurses, everybody, finances used to be a big part of what people were willing to compromise for. That's not so much with the younger generation. They want to make a good living, but not necessarily need millions. They want to provide for their family, and they would rather trade uh, work-life balance for some of that work. And that means that as we are seeing some of these changes, if we are able to keep up with integration of technology, that could help. 
if someone wants to spend time with their family and they can work from home doing virtual visits, that's a way that a doctor could be seen and still be active and be able to be with their family. Not for everyone, but a choice, and not just for women, for all doctors who want to be able to spend time with their family. If a nurse is tired of being on their feet and they don't want to be uh, a bedside nurse anymore, but there's a way that they could still be engaged by doing telemonitoring or disease management or discharges with a virtual iPad in a room, that's still ways that we could help and keep people engaged. So that's why I said we have to be innovative and think all the way around. On the Latinx question and all minorities, I think part of it has to do with being able to provide mentorship. It is a big leap to ask someone to go into a career that no one else in their family is doing. It's easier when you come from a line of by clinicians and they know exactly what to expect and they tell you this is what you need to do or you come from fields or careers or communities where everyone knows someone. What we did that was truly impressive last year, I want to credit our team who's here and some of our others, we created a diversity and equity inclusion program where we really concentrated on making sure that we reached out to underrepresented groups, all groups that could be underrepresented that traditionally were first-time graduates, were first-time in college, were the first in their family to go forward, who had great grades and all all the attributes that you'd want to see, but for some reason we're choosing not to be part of our internal medicine residency programs or others they were leaving and going to other communities or deciding to pass and not do certain programs at all. And so we worked really hard to make sure that we brought in individuals who looked like them, who had gone through their experiences, and asked them to have conversations with them throughout the process, to have discussions, to be able to meet with them, to get to know them, and to be providing support when it was necessary through the choice. We went up 75% on the number of unrepresented, of underrepresented communities who were from our local community through our residency programs. And so that was a huge step. In one year, we saw a 50 to 75% increase in the number of individuals who selected our programs. So it is important that we sometimes concentrate on maybe not the right things and thinking that these candidates need additional help or they're somehow less qualified or when we talk about underrepresented, because that's not true. That's not what we're seeing. They're incredibly qualified individuals with some of the highest grades and highest performance, but the challenge is that you're asking them to do something that they don't see a lot with them and that it might be easier to make a choice to become an engineer where that's four or five years versus 12 years and not knowing the difference of what being a physician means or it's safer maybe because they know it. And maybe not tuition. as much money in medical debt. So we have to look at tuition, which has been talked about. We have to look at mentorship. We have to provide support. And we have to be willing to look at candidates and create the feeder programs with support along the way, recognizing that if you have never seen it, it's hard to ask someone to be it. And so you need to provide that mentorship to be a holistic program. You know, the, the bright spot is the, the, the most recent enrollment data we have uh, nationally is from 2022-2023 calendar year. We don't have this year's data yet. Um, we actually saw an increase 4% in um, Latinx students, um, now 12% of entering uh, medical students, um, an increase in black African-American medical students, now 10% nationally um, of all students. Um, we expect, however, with the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, that we're going to face headwinds and that all of the programs, all the intentional efforts um, that we're seeing that the AMA has supported nationally to make those numbers where they are, are going to backslide. We can't allow that to happen. We have to be very determined in our efforts to make sure that we continue to diversify uh, the physician workforce. Uh, and obviously, the AMA will do everything that we can to support it. Um, I, I think there's some really exciting things. You know, I had the opportunity to participate in the um, Black Men and White Coats Youth Summit at Malcolm X. Um, uh, community College uh, last year, and the summit's coming up, I think, later this month um, here, and events like that that show 
you know, uh, grade school kids and high school kids that you can't have a future in health professions are so critical so that people can develop those mentoring relationships um, and see themselves in these careers, and we need to do more of those things. If I can add one more thing that I think is also really important, if you look at the statistics of who goes into underserved neighborhoods and uh, is interested in serving the underserved patient population, it is much higher among um, uh, physicians who graduate who are underrepresented in medicine now. Our black and Latinx physicians have a much higher percentage of serving that most needy population. So I think it's really, really a very important question that was raised. And then uh, the only thing that I would add, too, is if there can be any silver lining to SCOTUS, which I I have a hard time even saying this, (laughs) but the one positive is that really the increased emphasis on the pathway programs might actually help this entire mentoring focus. And that has been, when you look at what, what California, what Florida have done, the school's responses have often been, we've been focusing on the pathway programs predominantly. And that was explicitly permitted by the Supreme Court. So that that helps as well. You know, the, the, the evidence is very convincing and very clear that racially diverse care teams produce better health outcomes in racially diverse patients. But the goal is not to have segregated care. The goal is to have health care teams where racial and ethnic representation is more common across the teams. You know, I would add one last thing that I think is important from everything is the underrepresented faction. Sometimes, you know, we have inappropriate preconceived notions of who is underrepresented and where it's at, and everybody needs to be there, including minorities. But you have people in Appalachia who have never had anyone graduate high school that need help in underrepresentation, too. I think the important part is that we need to make sure that everyone's included in healthcare, because when a voice is not at the table for healing, that means that drugs are being created, manufactured, designed, things are being done to make sure that someone's voice is not there. And during COVID, we saw that the Moderna vaccine was created by an African-American woman physician, and and we saw COVID actually have some of the most powerful drugs with the least amount of side effects that were given universally to patients that actually had the greatest acceptance and tolerance risk rating that actually met the standard of meeting the efficacy of caring for these patients. When you have diversity, it doesn't hurt. It helps and amplifies for everyone. And I think that that's an important part that we have to understand in medicine because while we may, while we may not have everyone in the medical field Medicine is life in some sorts, and so you get diseases and contract from each other, from working in streets, from taking subways, from taking metros, taking buses, working in Ubers, working at places. Everyone is there, and we are all in it together. If we do not have everyone at the table for healing, you're going to be opening up a risk for yourself and others as well. And we have to have racially diverse uh, physician scientists leading those technology developments, medicines, therapeutics, technologies. You know, there's the really shocking example of pulse ox symmetry, and and some of you may be aware of this, but it was well described uh, during COVID that um, pulse oximetry, which is a really critical tool. People know it's a little, you know, sticker that goes on your finger with the light that shines through that tells you your oxygen level. Um, well, I'm an anesthesiologist. I would never take a patient to surgery without a pulse ox, um, and yet they don't work in people with dark skin colors. Um, and that was highlighted during COVID because people were being triaged inappropriately. People were not being given oxygen. People were not going to the ICU because the pulse ox does not work well. It is not calibrated well in people with dark skin pigmentation. The shocking thing is we've known about this problem for 30 years, but we just never decided that it was important enough 
to do anything about it. We cannot allow technologies, medicines, therapeutics to be designed that don't work for all patients. And that's a key part of our strategic work at the AMA to make sure that these products and things services are uh, inclusive of all patients. Uh, you, you both mentioned bringing different voices to the table. I appreciate that because here at City Club we try to do the same thing and, and combine people from different fields and different, you know, different times in their careers. So I, I know that Jose had mentioned we had a couple of students here. So I'd, I'd like to just, again, acknowledge them, medical students. And, and I think this is a question from you, Jonas, that, uh, you know, we're actually having, we made it a point to have students at the table, and we're doing that now moving forward. We started with the transportation That's panel, great. and we had, and they, it's, it's great to have at the University of Chicago. We have so many great universities here in and around Chicago, Northwestern, obviously. So we're, we're doing this with students from all, all over the region and in all different uh, sectors. So they have unique voices, right, and they are the future. So it's great to be able to have them as part of the conversation. We're going to do more of that. I know that that's especially meaningful to you as, as you're helping to guide this next generation. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that and, and, uh, and, and also lead right into to a question, right, since uh, have the amplify the voice at the table um, so Jonas asked, he's again from the Pritzker, uh, medical, uh, Pritzker Medical Student from University of Chicago. As a medical student, uh, one of my fears is that, uh, let's see, that after years of work, I may not match into residency. What exactly is stopping residence, residency programs from opening significant more slots for all of the very qualified medical students in the country. Your handwriting is becoming a doctor's handwriting very slowly. Um, hopefully I got the essence of the question. Uh, this is what's on the minds of, of those coming into the field. What, um, what can you tell us about residencies? And I'm not, and I'm not sure who would be best suited to answer this. I think all of us probably this, have but. a comment. Um, I, I think the biggest problem with the number, well, there's a mismatch, actually. So if you look at the number of available residency spots writ large, there are plenty of spots for U.S. graduates. But the problem is, is that if you look at a majority of those are in primary care specialties where U.S. graduates are not that U.S. graduates are not attracted to. So they are being filled now for the first time. The primary care residency spots are being filled by a majority of doctors of osteopathic medicine, another area that's increasing number of graduates, mm -hmm. as well as foreign medical graduates for the first time. So um, for U.S. medical students, if they, one is I think we need to think of ways to incentivize primary care for all the reasons we've been talking about. And there are some somewhat radical thoughts I might have in that space uh, in addition to making it a more appealing specialty. But the other is Congress and congressional funding to actually increase the number of spots in the specialty domains. Um, and that, for the first time, there is a bill in front, you know this better than me again, I keep saying that, so um, there is a bill in front of Congress to increase by what is it? The uh, over five, the next five years, fourteen thousand, I think, is the number. Fourteen thousand residency spots in GME training. Um, that's not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it's a complex question, um, and certainly also. Um, folds, runs over into the burnout space, too, because if you want to talk about what's putting the largest pressures on our medical students, 
it's their fear of matching into a specialty of their choice, I would say. And just, just for context, um, this year we had just north of 40,000 available residency positions. So to add 14,000 on top of 40,000 additional positions through federal funding would be uh, an important increase, and we continue to urge Congress to do that. Uh, what folks probably don't know is that Medicare funding actually is tied to those GME slots in you know, certain facilities. I'm sure that was one of them. Go over their cap, so they decide that you know, they're going to have unfunded positions that, that they pay for themselves because it's important for lots of reasons uh, to serve the community, to make sure the training is available um, for students. Um, but the bulk of positions are federally funded through Medicare. And, and I would just add to that, we, we uh, have a lot of positions that are able to be matched, and especially are the, are the ones that are, are probably most coveted and hardest to create, and those actually are the areas where we struggle. It's part of exactly having the number of residency slots, but very soon it's also becoming the number of providers available to do that work, because working in residencies has additional work, and so if you're trying to fill an anesthesiology residency, that takes quite a number of anesthesiologists, and then... Uh, and their availability to practice, run a residency, and be able to uh, be able to to secure what they're wanting to secure professionally is sometimes an issue that comes back and forth as we're having more people retire. So I would say that it starts with the number of slots and it starts with the number of people that we have. But I think we're, we're trying to be as, uh, as competitive as we can with creating new slots and correct, we don't have the slots, we don't get funded for it, so the hospital has to take it out of its expenses. Hospitals are getting thinner margins and so there's less money to be making those investments. But I think over time, if we get more slots, it will help correct that. We also need to be willing to increase the number of residency slots in the specialties as well as the primary care, and we have to somehow be willing to get more interest in our primary care slots as well. And so, there, as I said, there was about 40,000, I think 39,000 students matched, and so there were some seats still available that go through the, the, the process where people just sort of uh, have that last uh, availability where people can take available slots. Um, and so there is, they're, they're all pretty much taken. Uh, there is not enough slots for everyone in the specialties of their choice, but there are enough slots to meet most of the demand of medical students. But I think the greater concern that we need to start talking about as well is looking at the number of physician retirements as compared to the number of physician residencies that we have. If we know that we're going to create 40,000 more a year, we need to know how many are retiring because the population keeps growing, our life expectancy is extending, and disease mortality and complications and morbidity is increasing at younger ages. All that means that you're going to need to have more people in active care. And so if you're not increasing the capacity, that's why you're also getting this burnout issue. So we need to fund more residencies. We need to make them more attractive for people to be willing to go into internal medicine residencies and others, as well as augment specialties, because we don't have enough psychiatrists. We don't have enough anesthesiologists. We don't have enough radiologists. Dermatology, if you try to get an appointment for that, is, 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 is very difficult. So you have a lot of problems getting those appointments, so we just don't have enough. There's clear need that we need more. There needs to be maybe a funding and a desire to create maybe 30,000 new additional residencies, or at least 10% above the number that retired. And that would at least give you some 10% growth per year. And so those are the things and questions we need to start having. So I think your question is an excellent question, and one that we need to be monitoring more closely to look at the number of students we have, the number of residencies that we have, and the number of retirements that we have, and make sure we're creating the capacity to make sure that all individuals who have gone to the school are able to fulfill the work that they want because burnout can also happen if someone matches into a program that they didn't want. 
And so we need to figure that out. And everything that Israel just said is magnified when you look at the the geography issue. Because (laughs) we're talking about big cities, and Mm -hmm. so the number of the specialists to find them Mm -hmm. in a big city, if you start to going into geographically um, rural areas, the physician shortages are just exponentially magnified. So are there, there exist currently programs for loan repayment and debt repayment of medical debt for medical school for, for students who are choosing to serve in those areas, that still is not enough to attract the students to actually pursue that. We have a very low utilization of those programs that are federally funded programs right now. There's, there's so much to discuss. I mean, it's amazing how many topics we're hitting, right? Workforce development, the Supreme Court and affirmative action, uh, you, you name it, getting kids, you know, mental health, so many, so many things that we can address and so much more, so many questions that we weren't able to address and, and mentions of, of other programs that are, that are uh, happening. Uh, Commissioner Moore actually talked about the, the Teach, the Train Early Achievers for Careers in Health uh, program that, that Israel, you're, you're familiar with, I'm sure, um, getting kids involved at an earlier age. So we at City Club do intend to keep these conversations going. Unfortunately, we can't do too much of it more today. Um, I'd like to, you had mentioned your teams here. I'd like to acknowledge your team from Cook County Health, if you could. Uh, thank you for all you're doing and, and, and stand or raise your hand. And, um, and Dr. Green, you know, Northwestern, I know, has been a, a, a huge, now we've, we also have other universities here. If you're involved in the medical field from that educational perspective, um, please show us your uh, your hands. I know we've got, uh, yep, Rob Christie, a whole no- number of folks here that are starting, that are helping to train that next field, and of course our future doctors themselves. So please uh, raise your hand and, and let us say thank you for all the great work you've done and, uh, and are continuing to do. And uh, Dr. Ehrenfeld, the, the AMA, again, a great partner, Justin and, and and Rod are here, and, and, and obviously the whole team from the AMA. Uh, we've done some great things with the AMA from uh, a City Club perspective and look, to, look forward to doing so much you know, more. I'd love to just, I'd love to recognize you all first and then maybe ask you to close out if that well, would make and sense. And I just, I have to point something out, which is I once was a Pritzker University of Chicago medical student, <laughs> um, and the person, who signed, the person who signed my diploma is actually now the CEO of the AMA, so it all comes full circle. So there is hope for the two of you. <laughs> Perfect. So I, I was leading to that where we thank you, Dr. For Madera, for being here. You were, you were at our, our first uh, program when we did this at the, the hatchery, and uh, more to come. Um, there's so much more to come. There's so much more to address. I hope that you'll all come back uh, to entice you all to come back. We have um, some memberships for uh, another year uh, of, of membership to the City Club. So I will... Um, I will pass these to each of you and, and look forward to having you join us at future programs. Uh, and there are so many future programs, uh, ones tomorrow. Uh, we're hitting so many different topics. So um, please join us uh, for any one of these. We've got the Inglewood Economics uh, Community and Capital merging uh, tomorrow here at, at Maggiano's. Um, City Club's first head of state is going to be here on September 11th. The Prime Minister of the Bahamas, Brave Davis, amazing speaker on, on some of the climate change issues. Um, we've got Attorney General Kwame Raoul coming on the 13th, um, Senator Tammy Duckworth on the 22nd. 
I, I bet you that every one of these are, are somehow or another going to talk about the medical field and all the issues that, that, we're, um, that we're discussing here today. So please join us for any of those programs coming up. Uh, it's an honor to have all of you here today and these um, brilliant minds uh, that, that the City Club is so honored to just welcome here. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you back. Thanks again to each of you and, and to our audience. Have a great day and thanks for being here. Thanks, Dave.